Welcome to Art Matters, I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Find us online at artuk.org and on social media on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. I distinctly remember watching an episode of Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego as a kid, where Carmen traveled around the world stealing the Mona Lisa's smile and Van Gogh's eyes from paintings in an effort to make the perfect masterpiece. That was my highly sophisticated introduction to art crime. The reality of art crime is far less cartoonish, but I'm still as captivated by the stories as ever. Art crime is a much bigger problem than most people realize. It's been called the third highest grossing criminal trade worldwide every year, behind only the drug and arms trades. That's Dr. Noah Charney, researcher in the field of art crime and the author of several books relating to forgery, lost art, and the theft of the Mona Lisa. Don't worry, we'll come back to all of this later. The majority of art crime is perpetrated by or on behalf of organized crime groups, from small local groups to large international mafias, and it's even a funding source for terrorism. So it's a very serious crime type, whether or not you're an art lover. That's really surprising. You do, I mean, because I think one of the things that surprises me about art crime is if you steal a painting, a famous painting, how can you get away with selling it without people immediately going, this seems like there's no way you could display it or enjoy it if you've stolen it. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And that's probably my most frequently asked question. And the answer is, um, well, it's a little complicated. I usually teach uh, a 25 hour long history of art crime uh, postgraduate seminar in the summer okay. on, on this, but I'll try to give you the, the much shorter version. In short, you're correct for extant famous works of art. These are works of art that are in a collection somewhere. For them to be stolen, there is really no market for them, black or otherwise. They're instantly recognizable as having been stolen, um, and you really can't shop them around. However, criminals seem to think that they will be able to find a criminal collector in the Dr. No, Thomas Crown type, because they've watched the same movies that the rest of us have watched. And mm-hmm. they it, it's funny because it's an unusual crime type in that media actually leads and informs criminality. So criminals will steal art, assuming they're going to find someone like this. And then they sort of look around surreptitiously and realize that they can't find anyone to meet that description. But then sort of on the horizon, there appears to be someone who looks a bit like this cliched criminal art collector. And most of the time, it turns out to be an undercover policeman in disguise. Most often, Charlie Hill, who's this great, colorful character. He's an American, but a very British one, who was Scotland Yard's lead undercover agent for recovering stolen art for many years and now does the work privately. Charles Hill is a fascinating man who worked for over 20 years tracking down stolen artworks by some of the most famous artists you can imagine. Not every detective can say they helped recover a stolen Goya or track down Edvard Munch's The Scream after a museum smash and grab. It's hard to believe how any criminal thinks they'd be able to successfully offload one of the most famous paintings in art history without getting caught. Noah explained to me how works take on a new life once they've been stolen. There's a very important case study that's relevant to explaining how famous works of art can provide value for criminals, even if they're not sold. In um, the 1980s, 
Martin Cahill, who's infamous for being a very ruthless Irish gangster who ran his own organized crime group with links to terrorism. Um, and he decided that he was going to make a name for himself and retire on the proceeds of a really big art heist. And you need to understand that dating back to the Victorian era, art theft was considered to be high class among criminals. It was something that criminals aspired towards. Um, they thought it was classy because it was associated with you know, the, uh, the, the elites of the world. And so criminals dating back to the 19th century would um, look at other criminals who had perpetrated art thefts um, with admiration. And that still continued into the 1980s. Martin Cahill and Associates stole from Rustborough House um, 18 works of art, including um, a Vermeer, a Goya, a Gabriel Metsu painting as a contemporary of Vermeer's and, and others. These objects he was initially going to try to sell, but um, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, he must have not been able to find a criminal buyer as he hoped or no one who he thought was not maybe a policeman in disguise. And so he very cleverly came up with other ways to benefit from these instantly recognizable world famous paintings that he had stolen. The hard part wasn't stealing them, the hard part is making some sort of profit or benefit out of them. So what happened? Well, the Vermeer he smuggled to Antwerp where he gave it as collateral on a loan for 1 million pounds from a diamond merchant to whom he used to sell stolen jewels. The idea was that he would get the million pounds and he was going to use it to buy drugs wholesale. His people would sell them on the street, he would make a profit, and then he would go back and return the loan to the diamond merchant and retrieve Vermeer. And the Vermeer would go on to act as collateral in other deals. The Vermeer is probably worth, you know, 50 to 100 million. So this seemed like a good deal. Mm -hmm. And that was what was going to happen. But the diamond merchant got ants in his pants, as we say in America. Um, and he decided he was going to sell it before Martin Cahill could pay back the loan. And he did find someone who wanted to buy it, but that person turned out to be Charlie Hill in disguise. <laughs> so, so that was, it was an arrest made and that was recovered. Based on the same theft, Turkish police raided a warehouse where they found a deal being done between two different organized crime groups who were swapping the Gabriel Metsu painting for a shipment of drugs. And so within this same initial theft, you see famous stolen art used as collateral on a loan and also in a barter system for other illicit high value goods for which there is a risk in trying to find a buyer. And this is a microcosm, but it's one that's a solved crime that we know lots about that indicates what is probably happening with hundreds of other crimes each year when famous works of art disappear and they don't seem to be offered for sale. They're subsumed within a network of organized crime groups and traded among each other for other illicit goods. It seems like you'd never get the money out of it. It's just kind of being passed it's around. It's a very good observation, and it's true. The way I describe it is if you imagine it's a check. A check is totally worthless unless someone is willing to cash it for you. But if you understand that you could probably find a black market you know, check cashier who's going to do it for you, then you can agree that as long as you don't try to cash it, you minimize risk, but it still has a value attached to it. 
And the value that criminals seem to think they can get for stolen art is approximately 10% of its estimated legitimate value. That is uh, a figure that we know based essentially on how much police going undercover have been asked to pay for stolen art. And so, okay, with an example, a Rembrandt stolen from the National Gallery of Sweden um, was estimated as worth about 2.5 million euros and an undercover policeman was asked to pay 250,000 euros for it. So that's an example. They assume mm -hmm. that they will be able to find a buyer even if it's risky to do so for that percentage. And so they equate that painting as if it's a check and its value is 10% of its legitimate auction value. And then they swap it for other goods that there is a risk in selling. If you have a carton of AK-47s, you understand that they have value, but there's also a risk in trying to find a buyer for them. Well, they see stolen art as in the same category and therefore can swap it for other illicit goods. And if you never actually try to cash out, then there's very little risk of being caught. Okay, if art crime has you picturing burglars and striped shirts dropping down from a museum ceiling, you're not alone. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. But there are several very real areas to this field outside of what you might initially think of. So when I teach the history of art crime, I divide it into several categories. The most immediate one that comes to mind is art theft, which I define as the theft of cultural heritage objects from extant collections. That means that the objects have been accounted for and they're in a church or a museum or someone's home, but they are extant as opposed to, to lost. The other category that we can turn to is looting. And this is used to describe objects taken out of the earth or the sea that have, for all intents and purposes, never existed for modern humans. The last time they were seen was when they were buried, however, long ago or lost at sea. And these are lost objects that can then enter the market and enter collections. We also have a category of iconoclasm and vandalism, which is the intentional damage or destruction of works of cultural heritage. We have war looting, and looting during war or in conflict zones is its own category of study because you know the rules are different. It's anarchic, and um, there's a different way that you need to approach it intellectually. Then we have forgery and fakes, which is its own subcategory. I have a whole book that focuses just on that because while it's parallel to other types of art crime, it really functions in its own field. And then the final one is security studies, which is essentially protecting art in museums, libraries, archives, and in the field. Of those categories, which one do you think is the biggest problem? Think you know? You may be surprised. By far the biggest problem in the history of art crime and today is illicit trade in looted antiquities, which are taken directly from the earth or sometimes the sea and have never been seen before by modern humans. As a result, they'll never appear on any stolen art registry or police all points bulletin. And we don't know what to look for essentially. These objects can be sold on an open or a gray market at full value or something approaching full value. And in terms of quantity, this is by far the biggest problem. Objects are sold on auction websites, not just on the dark net. That sounds very dramatic, but that happens irregularly. They're sold on 
legitimate sounding auction websites or online, or even in places like flea markets or in professional galleries with their history doctored in such a way to make them appear legitimate. So in terms of quantity, that's the main issue. Okay. So this begs the question, who owns things, right? Because if I go swimming out in the Mediterranean and I find, you know, something in at the bottom of the ocean or the, the sea, uh, who oh, who should be the owner of that then? Well, it's a great question and it's very complicated in legal terms. It depends where exactly in the sea or in some cases on land an object is found. If it's on land, the owner is the government of the country that is currently running that piece of land. Why do I say that in a funny way? Well, Italy wasn't a country until the 1860s, um, but Mm -hmm. Italy is the owner if you find something in the country of Italy today. Also within a- Even if it's on your own property? um, Even if it's on your own property, if it's considered to be something of um, a cultural heritage object, you are obliged to report it to a local government authority. In practice, mm-hmm. if you know anything about Italy, nobody in their right mind would because then it's going to be a bureaucratic nightmare, but that's what you're supposed to do. In the UK, there's another example that they're, they're more pragmatic. Um, you are allowed to go treasure hunting, for instance, with a metal detector, mm-hmm. um, but anything that you find, you have to give the government the first option to buy from you. And in that way, they have a system where it essentially makes it legal to go treasure hunting, but whatever you find, you have to let the government have the first option to buy it. So there are various ways that governments can try to curb the clandestine excavations, which are the most devastating because the objects can disappear entirely. Their selling can fund the sort of things you don't want to be funded, like terrorist activity. Um, And the information is lost at the moment that the excavation is done by non-professional archaeologists. In the ocean, it's slightly different. It depends how far away from the shore an object is found. Now let's take a look at forgeries and the interesting patterns of thinking that happen in forgers and in the public's reception of forgers. There's a really odd psychology to forgers, and in fact, a very specific psychological profile that the vast majority of known forgers have fit. But there's also an interesting psychology for the way the general public reacts to forgers. And you can see that in uh, the popular media. The idea is that forgers aren't really so bad. They're the kind of criminal that it's okay to cheer for. In practical criminological terms, rarely are they damaging anyone on a wider scale beyond the immediate victim, which is usually an elite collector or institution for which the general public doesn't necessarily have that much sympathy. Mm And also they tend to be presented, and in fact they are, more prankster than gangster. These are people who are clever. They're very talented artistically in some cases. And they're essentially pulling the wool over the eyes of what people see as an elitist institution that, in the opinion of the general public, may sometimes deserve to have the wool pulled over their eyes. So are there any examples um, that come to mind of stories of forgers who are particularly interesting or maybe became famous in their own right? Ooh, loads of them. How much time have I got? This is, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things to, to talk about. I looked at 120 master forgers for my book, The Art of Forgery, which came out in 2015. And of them, I chose around 60 as case studies. And of those, I have a couple of favorites. One of them is 
the forger most likely to be um, known to, to listeners, and his name is Eric Hebern, and he was a British forger who was never caught, but volunteered his activities by publishing a book called The Art Forger's Handbook, which was basically like a cookbook for how he made forgeries. Um, wow. And he's great fun. I'd love to go out for a beer with him. Uh, he was unfortunately murdered in Rome in the 1990s, so he must have rubbed someone the wrong way. But um, he's a, a, a very colorful character. And of all the forgers I looked at, he's the only one who I would consider was at the level of the artists he forged artistically. And he forged the works of Michelangelo, Van Dyck, and Raphael. So this is no wow. small praise. He also encouraged um, getting drunk prior to forging. So you have a looser line. And he has wonderful recipes, like um, if you want to train yourself to use a quill pen. Is step one of his recipe is first find an obliging bird who's going to let you pluck <laughs> one of his quills. So he's got a really good sense of humor. Yeah. There, there are many forgers who had a sense of humor, and that's you know one way why we uh, find them endearing. There also tend to be uh, working class folks who are showing up um, a high class institution, so it has that sort of Robin Hood narrative to it. Yeah, I, I'd like to go into the psychology of it a bit, because if you're as talented as Michelangelo or Van Dyck, like you say, why not be your own artist? Are you doing it for the money? Are you doing it for the cheek? You know? Well, the, the vast majority of known forgers, all of them really, except for Hebron, tried their hand at being an original artist. And for some reason along the path, were unable to make a go of it. Some of them tried to get into art school and didn't make it. Others tried to make a living selling their own art, but they basically couldn't make ends meet. And almost none of them are at a level that approaches the people they forged. Eric Hebron is really the outlier in terms of his quality. But mm -hmm. the forgers then turn to forgery for a very specific and very consistent reason. There is a sort of double revenge if you would like to be an original artist selling your own works, but you feel that the art institution as a collective whole has rejected you. So you can get a sort of passive aggressive revenge on them in two ways. The first is if you pass off your work as the work of an established and admired artist, then you can reasonably rationalize to yourself that you must be as good as that artist. Mm -hmm. The second part of it is you can rationalize that if the so-called experts are so foolish as to confuse your work for that of the established master, then the experts must not be very expert at all. However, you may have caught that there's a logical discrepancy between these two positives in the mind of the forger. If the experts mm -hmm. are not really good at expertise at all, then maybe they would confuse the work of a forger with an original. And therefore, maybe the forger isn't as good as the authentic artist. But in the mind of the forgers, this is a sort of double revenge uh, pleasure. The second part of the revenge that the experts are shown to be very foolish for being fooled by a forger is entirely private unless the forger is caught. And that's the second part of this very strange and fascinating psychology. The forger has to be content knowing and being the only one in the world to know that his works mm -hmm. have been passed off as originals. But this, this is insufficient glory for most of them. And the majority of forgers, 
either got caught and there's they made such a silly mistake that it almost feels like they wanted to be caught subconsciously, or if they weren't caught, like Eric Cabrin, they volunteered themselves in public that they were the forgers because they wanted that credit. And they also wanted the knife-twisting revenge against the so-called experts to show them up as having been fooled. Otherwise, no one but the forger knows. So there's this element of wanting to be recognized for your work as a forger, even though you're producing work as someone else. To go even further down this rabbit hole, sometimes forgers become famous in their own right. There are cases in which the forger became more famous than the artist he was forging, um, and his works became more valuable, or the fact that they became a forger gave them a career as an original artist making works in imitation of other artists. And the example that comes to mind, John Myatt, who's another very well-known forger in England because he was a, a TV personality. He had a TV show on Sky Arts where he would teach young artists how to create works in the style of other artists. They weren't forgeries because they didn't pass them off as such, but he's very charming. And he now sells his own, as he calls them, genuine fakes, which he signs with <laughs> his own name, but he'll do it in the style of any artist you like. And he sells them sometimes for six figures. So this after... Um, a career as a forger, two years in prison, and he's doing quite well, thank you. And George Clooney bought the film rights to his life story, so he's, he's probably wow. has the last laugh in this case. One of the most securely protected paintings in the world has to be Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa in the Louvre. It's under constant surveillance, guarded by invisible beams, and sits behind bulletproof glass. This wasn't always the case, however, so sit back for Noah's telling of the most famous theft of the Mona Lisa. It gets very interesting. In uh, 21st of August, 1911, was the most famous theft of the Mona Lisa. It was stolen by an Italian handyman and amateur painter named Vincenzo Perugia. And he stole it ostensibly because he thought that it had been stolen from Italy by Napoleon. This was a pretty good guess because Napoleon had stolen literally thousands of works of art from Italy during the Italian War in the 19th century. This wasn't one of them, though. This had accompanied Leonardo da Vinci at the end of his life to France, where he was under the patronage of François Premier. And when he died, all of his possessions went to um, Salai, his assistant, and then they were eventually sold to the King of France. So they legally entered the collection, um, but he didn't know that. He stole the Mona Lisa um, by pretending to be a Louvre worker, locking himself in overnight. He, in fact, was working um, part-time for a company that had been hired by the Louvre, ironically, to make protective glass cases to cover the most famous works because they were afraid that they might be attacked by anarchists. So he had an in, and uh, he stole the painting, um, removed it from its frame, wrapped it in a white sheet, um, and escaped into Paris. Um, and it's not clear what his initial intentions were. A recent discovery suggests that he made a list of wealthy collectors. So he may have been thinking of trying to sell it, but he quickly realized he would, was incapable of doing so. He didn't have the connections. And he kept it for two years. He kept it in his room. Uh, he describes himself as having grown obsessed with it. Um, he wouldn't leave. He would just stare at it for hours on end. But eventually he smuggled it back to Italy in the false bottom of a shipping container. And he brought it to Florence 
And at a hotel that's now called Hotel La Gioconda, a hotel that you can still visit in Florence today, he met with uh, the head of the Uffizi Museum and a local dealer. And he said he had brought the Mona Lisa back and he'd like to return it to, to Italy. And he was very surprised to find himself arrested because he thought he would be greeted as a national hero. In fact, this was the Mona Lisa. At first, they were suspicious, but they put him on trial. Um, he got a sort of slap on the wrist sentence, but he became very famous international headlines because of the bungled investigation on the part of the Paris police. Um, when it was first stolen, they had no leads at all. They were very confused. They never suspected Perugia. They even interviewed him twice and never thought that he was a suspect. Um, and then eventually there was a trial in which Perugia was really seen as sort of an Italian folk hero who meant well. Mm -hmm. But that's just the most famous story. There are other incidents with the Mona Lisa that people tend to forget about, like the times when it was attacked, and also the time when Pablo Picasso was briefly accused of having stolen it. He had not stolen it, but he had stolen other things from the Louvre um, in an affair called the Affaire des Statuettes, which is a little known but totally fascinating corner of art history in which we have Pablo Picasso as an art thief. Tell us the story. Well, Picasso and his best friend, the Polish poet Guillaume Polonaire, were visiting the Louvre regularly. And back in 1907, he admired some Iberian statue heads, two of them in particular, that were on display for a temporary exhibition of Phoenician art. And he noted them in his diary that he particularly admired them. For a brief period of time, Apollinaire employed a secretary who was a Belgian quirky fellow. He turned out to be a con man named Géry Pierret. And Géry Pierret claimed later to have stolen these statue heads on commission from Picasso. Um, how do we know this? Well, when the Mona Lisa was stolen in 1911, Guillaume Apollinaire was brought in for questioning for having been an associate of Géry Pierret. Géry Pierret by this time had left Paris but he wrote to a Parisian newspaper that he was very annoyed that someone else had stolen the Mona Lisa because he had thought about stealing it. And he was also been regularly stealing from the Louvre. And now there would be much more security and it sort of would mess up his groove. <laughs> and this letter was published because of his association with Apollinaire. Apollinaire was brought into the police for questioning and Picasso was as well. This was in connection with the Mona Lisa theft and they were entirely innocent of it. However, they were very nervous because they had been involved back in 1907 with stealing these two Iberian statue heads. How easy was it to steal from the Louvre at this time? Well, back in, back in the day, it was unfortunately very easy. They had over 400 rooms and only about 200 guards. They had no alarms. And things like statuary were normally just displayed on open tables. They were not enclosed in glass vitrines. So it was unfortunately not difficult, and supposedly Géry Pierret had been stealing so regularly that he once, his girlfriend at the time, remembers him having asked her, honey, I'm going to the Louvre, do you want anything? And she thought he meant the Louvre sort of shopping arcade behind the museum, but he actually meant the museum itself. The reason that Picasso is thought to have been involved in the theft is that uh, a study that was published in my 2009 book, Art and Crime, suggested that the statues were too unwieldy and heavy for one person to carry. Géry Pierret claims that he carried them out of the Louvre uh, hidden under a trench coat, 
and that he was so saucy that he actually stopped and asked the Louvre guard where the nearest exit was on his way out. But in fact, the statues were large and heavy, and they were also in storage after this exhibition at the time that they were stolen. So almost certainly it was a two-man job, and it's very likely that Picasso was the second man in the operation. They ha these statue heads were kept in his sock drawer, which uh, Fernand uh, Olivier, his uh, girlfriend at the time, remembers thinking it was weird that all of his art collection was on display except for these statue heads, which he kept, you know, in, in, his, in his sock drawer. Um, and mm -hmm. he wrote himself about thinking of hiding the evidence by throwing them into the Seine River the night before he was going to be called in by the police for questioning about the Mona Lisa theft, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. But this theft is important just to conclude with the history of art. The very first modernist painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon of 1907, actually includes both statue heads, which were the inspiration for two of the faces of the female figures in the painting. Pretty interesting, right? While looking through works on the Art UK website recently, I came across a painting in a UK collection with its own interesting tale. In 1974, a thief scaled a 10-foot wall, smashed a window of Kenwood House, and ran off with Johannes Vermeer's The Guitar Player before a guard could catch them. Scotland Yard were on the lookout for any attempt by a thief to exit the country with the painting, but also given how famous it is, they thought there could be a call for a ransom. Sure enough, a man called the Guardian newspaper demanding 1.1 million in food relief to be sent to Grenada in exchange for the painting's safe return. The man claimed to be from the Caribbean island, which had gained independence from Britain just one month prior to the incident. Eventually, the painting was recovered in a graveyard after an anonymous tip, and it's safely back at Kenwood House. Does all of this crime-busting make you want to learn more? There's a course for that. Well, one thing I would love to encourage listeners to do if they like the subject of lost art, art theft, and art forgery, is to consider coming to study with me and nine other leading specialists in their field on the summer-long annual Archipos graduate program in art, crime, and cultural heritage protection. This is the first program in the world where you could actually study art crime as an interdisciplinary field of study. It's entering its 10th year, and I teach the history of art crime, but for instance, we have the former head of Scotland Yard's art squad teach about art policing. We have the former security director of the Van Gogh Museum teaches a museum security course, and it's great fun. It's in Italy every year. And you can learn more at www.artcrimeresearch.org. Noah and I had a fantastic conversation where he shared even more stories about lost art, finding artifacts, and thefts than I had time to include in this episode. So send us a tweet if you'd like us to post the bonus content from this episode at some point. Use hashtag artmatterspodcast or add us at artuk.org. Noah also wrote a story for us on Art UK, so you can go over and read that right now. It's about lost buildings. What? What does that even mean? So go read that and find out. Head over to artuk.org for that, and we'll link to Noah Charney's website on the story for this episode so you can find out about his books and his research. If you'd like to be an art detective of a different kind, you'll be interested to know that we have a whole website dedicated to solving art mysteries. Scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and click through to our art detective website where you can find more details. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you'll please join us next time. <laughs>